Welcome to the May 2006 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. And Peter Jones. Hello, all. And we're here sitting around the table, and today we're going to talk about the house church. Uh, it's funny, we're recording this in an institutional church, but Big we're going we, to talk about the house church today. Uh, all of us have been involved in the house church in some way, and all of us have uh, uh, done a good bit of study on it, and we'd uh, like to share some of those thoughts and talk about specifically how, uh, how do you do the ordinary means in the house church, and can you do the ordinary means in the house church? Now, some of our listeners are hearing this and saying, oh yes, I've been a part of a house church too. I'm, I'm excited about hearing what you have to say. Others are going to say, what's a house church? Uh, maybe you've never heard of this idea. Uh, so, so that's the first question we need to put before us is what is the house church? Um, let, me, let me give us a little bit of a definition uh, to work with as we move along. When we're talking about the house church movement, uh, we are, as odd as this is going to sound, not talking about churches that meet in houses. There are plenty of churches that do that very thing. There are church plants, uh, starting churches that begin in houses. Our, ours did when I, when I planted the church in Fallbrook, uh, California. We started in a church. Often small churches... House started in, in I'm sorry, we started in a house. Uh, see, I'm so stuck. I'm stuck in the institutional church. Clearly, clearly. And, I, and I need to get out of that for this, for this podcast. Um, small churches in unpopulated areas. Mm-hmm. Meet in homes. Uh, I knew a church uh, met in a pastor's garage in San Diego because land in San Diego was impossible to get, so they converted their garage uh, into a sanctuary. So we're not talking about churches that meet in homes. What we're talking about is a movement of Christians who are seeking something in home worship that they did not find in what we're calling the institutional or the established church. Okay, so here's Wikipedia, that bastion of knowledge that Wikipedia is, written by fools like us. Some churches, uh, Wikipedia says, meet in houses because they lack conventional. They lack a conventional church building. We're getting, we're starting off on the right foot here. Uh, these are not normally regarded as house churches, as the intent is to eventually move into an off-site facility. Others meet in homes because they prefer to meet informally, because they believe it is an effective way of creating community and engaging in outreach, or because they believe small family-sized churches were a deliberate apostolic pattern in the first century. We're going to talk about that, talk about Acts 2, and what was intended by Christ. That's a question we have to ask as well, is the house is getting back to the house churches, the house church movement taking us to something that Christ intended. And then Wikipedia gives this phrase, they say, some perhaps meet in homes for several reasons. And, and they leave it open-ended there. And that, in addition to reminding me, Wikipedia often reminds me of Webster's Dictionary. Because you know Webster's Dictionary, they define attribute as the act of attributing. <laughs> you know, the house church, the act of having a church in your home. Uh, the reason that we have this with the house church is house churches are a hard nut to crack. 
There, people are doing it for all sorts of reasons. Uh, I hope we can touch on some of those many reasons why they do it. So you can't generalize about the house church because there is no general consensus as to what they're doing. So we want to start out by saying this. We don't want to stereotype. And I, and I know at times it's going to sound like we're stereotyping. Sometimes we're going to be talking about uh, house churches in a way that you say, well, no, 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 that's not my house church. Uh, just step back and say, okay, these guys are not trying to stereotype. We're just trying to answer the question, is house churching biblical, and can you do the ordinary means of grace in a house church context? Okay, so with that in mind, Matt, did you want to add to that in terms, either you guys want to add to that in terms of definition? I just want to say, the pe- people in the house church movement generally see it as a permanent form of the way church is supposed to be done. Yes. Not a temporary stopping point until we get to a building. Uh, but And that may be one way to help clarify in your mind a church that meets in a house and a house church. A house church sees this as permanent. This is the way it should be done. This is the way every church should be done. Um, this is the model set up by the apostles, the model set up by Christ. And this is the way it's supposed to be done forever, not a temporary situation. Now, now they do see themselves as replicating. Yes. Yes. It's not like this is the only Yes. Church, but another church across town would be another would house be church. another house church, yeah. and, and our in fact, I read one article in Time magazine where they talked about uh, a church that had grown to I think forty, and you know that's bigger than I could fit in my living room, and so they sent them uh, they they yeah. re- they replicated they sent yeah. out and started other house churches. Yes, I think what, one more thing just to do, and and it's probably good if we do this frequently for the listeners of the podcast is just to help define what level issue this is. Um, this is not a primary level issue. Uh, people that attend house churches, as Sean said, uh, the Wikipedia definition is right, may well have uh, the right beliefs. They may have repented and believed and truly trusted in Christ, and this is not something that's going to keep somebody out of heaven. Um, but it is a secondary level issue. Um, ecclesiology, that uh, the, the way in which church government and church works together uh, is a secondary level issue. It's not a tertiary level issue. It's not a far, far down the list issue. It is of secondary importance, and it is, um, if we were to use the words of the, reform- the reformers, it's not of the essence of the church, but it is of the good essence of the church. It, it uh, tends towards the, uh, the better advance of Christ's kingdom if we do ecclesiology right. There's reasons that we're, for example, the guys around the table here are Presbyterians. There's other reasons why our friends would be, might be Baptists or Congregationalists or Independents or even Episcopalians. But um, it's a secondary level issue. House church people, as they're trusting in Christ alone, turning from their sins, uh, are true Christians. Yeah, and, and we, want to, uh, we want to bring the Bible to bear on that. We want to... Uh, you know, give them the chance to air their why they think what they're doing is biblical. And uh, I know, Peter, you've done a lot of research. I've got some stuff here on what they're actually saying about their movement and how they believe their movement fits into uh, a biblical pattern. Uh, so we definitely, we definitely want to address all that. Perhaps in order to define the house church movement a little bit more, we need to ask, what is it they're addressing? Uh, what, what is your perspective, guys, on what are they reacting to? I, I think they're reacting to a culture which is completely fragmented um, in that 
with the, the loss of what had been sort of a failing Christian consensus anyways that might have lasted through the 60s, maybe slightly into the 70s when that consensus was lost, even if it was only broadly Christian. When that consensus was lost, there was a much greater degree of angst and a fragmentation in America in particular. And, um, and people are feeling rather disconnected. And um, this is one of the reasons some of what's preceded at least the prevalence of the house church movement now is movement back towards small groups and churches, which is, we haven't talked about that on a podcast, but something that we're not against as a secondary means in the church is just not an ordinary means. So, um, so these are people who've been, they've been lost in the megachurch. I think that that's probably true. Or they're just lost in culture. I can't remember who it is. Maybe you guys remember if you've read this, but... Um, you know, that most Americans statistically go through an entire week without having a significant conversation with anybody. Hmm. And that's even most American Christians. So the relationship ability of people is extraordinarily low, and so they're looking for deep connectedness with people. And that's what which the is house good, church, which, which is, is a very good thing. Yes. Absolutely. It's a very good thing. Um, and so that's at least one of the things that they're looking for, what it's grown up from, I think. I think they're, um, as I read through some of the literature and uh, websites and things like that. I tried to go to a site that were um, wide, widespread sites that appeared to have a lot of input from various house church people on them. It seemed to be a, a couple of different things they were reacting to. One, they are clearly reacting to human authority. And I think that is a prevalent theme in the house church movement, both in um, and, and not just re- reacting to authority in what way? human authority in that they do not believe any human being outside of Jesus Christ obviously has the authority according to scripture to tell someone else what to do we may voluntarily submit ourselves within the church structure I think they would say I didn't read much about parenting so I'm not going to go too far down that path but as far as the church structure the one of the dominant themes in the house church movement in the places I read and the things I looked at was everybody was on equal footing no one can be forced, direct quote from website, no one can be forced to submit to anybody else. It is a voluntary submission based upon a consensus of the people in, the, in that house church as to what, and based upon the leading of the Holy Spirit. Those were common phrases that were used. I think people may be reacting to the hierarchy of church government and the uh, abuses and the tyrancy of particulars. But then on the other side... So, so maybe some of these people were hurt in a bad church situation, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're looking to escape some of those issues. I, I think of even, even our denomination, the PCA, came out of the mainline Presbyterian when there were problems with it being too centered mm-hmm. on, on the top, from top down. And so the PCA is very much a grassroots denomination because of that same fact. So I could see that happening in a house church context. The, the listeners might not know what PCA means. It's a Presbyterian church in America, which is the denominational affiliation of the guys who sit around the table. Sean and I are ministers in that church, and Peter is a ruling elder in the PCA. PCANet.org. Just in there case you go. Looking for some more info. But then on the flip side of that, there was also reaction to the seeker-sensitive mentality that is so prevalent. The mm. entertainment. They emphasize the simple life. The Amish get a lot of play in the house church movement. Um, because the simple life is w- is what people want. They want these. Connect- so it's not. We, you know, I w- I want that. Yeah, me too. A lot of people do, <laughs> but you can't connect it with 
Some of you may be thinking house church, oh, that's kind of like a small group from a mega church. You cannot think that way because that is not the way they see themselves. They do not see themselves as, as small groups, as extensions. They see themselves as worshiping bodies trying to lead a simple, more set-apart life, and they see human authority as within the church context as a negative. Institutionalized, established church by its, is inherently Wrong. It, it cannot Acor- be according to the house church movement. Okay. Yes, it cannot be right um, because they, and they would argue biblically. So it may be that they they're reacting. I mean, I think they would say biblically. We feel like this is what it's saying, not just that we've had a bad experience, perhaps with. Well, that, that's my that's my sense overall of the house church movement is that they want to be biblical. Mm-hmm. It's they want to be a back to the Bible movement. You know, I think of some examples where you've got, you know, you've got a few families they're attaining, they're um, attending, uh, maybe a mainline church that's gone liberal, some little Midwest town. There's nowhere else for them to go. Uh, you know, this church doesn't preach the gospel anymore. In fact, the the pastor reads poems instead of preaching the word. It just makes sense that this group would then join together and do a house church. But what what I'm hearing from you, Peter, though, is that there's more to this movement than just wanting to break away from liberal churches. They're actually seeing this as an end. Yes, and I think that's the key distinction to make. The the stuff I read, read, let me mention a couple websites. Um, I went to hccentral.com, which is homechurchcentral.com. I went to homechurch-homepage.org. I went to therealchurch.com, loveofchrist.info, and you can go to those sites and find lots of links that I went to as well. But yes, I think that's a key distinction to make. They do not see this as the formation of another institutional church or anything of the sort. They see it as the end. The end is people meeting in, in their homes, small groups meeting in their homes with no authority structure, as in no elders, no official capacity where people have more authority than anybody else. And I think that that was now that wasn't true of every single site, but it was true of it was a pretty prevalent idea woven throughout it. There were not pastors as pastors. There were pastors, people shepherding. They wouldn't deny that. But you, Sean, would not have a pastor's I mean, you're not. A, you wouldn't be the pastor in a church. There is no the pastor. There are people who do pastoring. So this is different than uh, something that I know Matt and I were both involved in, which is the the meta church model, not the mega church model, but a reaction to the meta to the, to the mega church model. In that, uh, what the church sought to do, this church we were involved in sought to do, was have a worship service on Sunday in which everyone met together. But then throughout the week, we would have what we called house churches, which is there would be an elder over each of them, and, uh, and those house churches would meet and perform many of the functions that, that the church normally would. So we're distinguishing, well, or what you're seeing in, in your reading on the Internet, Peter, is that you see the house church movement is very distinguished from a meta, even a metachurch model. Yeah, there's, there's no one point. There's no, there's no, there are no elders that you send out to lead a house church. Because the institutional church, with its institutional hierarchy of structure, is wrong. It's not biblical. So you have people who function as elders, and those people could function as an elder today, and tomorrow they may not be functioning as an elder. So it's not an office. It is a 
um, role. It's a role you are given by the people. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it, Matt, as a role. And it's not anything that you're given for any period of time or even that has specific things you have to do. I mean, there's not even a specific list of things the elders or the papal pastor would have to do. And so... Well, it is true that the um, house church movement then is not connected. These individual house churches uh, do not want to even see themselves as connected together per se, uh, or connected especially to anything institutionalized, which makes them different than, uh, say, a parachurch ministry. Right. Um, they or are the best parachurch ministry. Or the, yeah, the best parachurch ministry. <clears throat> they are now. They are a movement, and I, I think we do need to focus a little bit on that term. That we're not talking about just a house church, a church meeting in a house, but the house church movement that is growing. And I and I can tell you, it's going to get bigger. Um, that seems to be the way that our society is moving. Um, but l- well, let me give you an example. This promise keepers. Promise keepers is a movement. It's a movement calling men to fulfill their vows. Plenty of men in the church keep their promises, right? I mean, every, every guy, every Christian man should know, I need to keep <clears throat> my promises. But promise keepers saw this niche that was not addressed uh, as fully as it ought to have been, namely men being faithful to their wives and their children and their churches. And, and promise keepers stepped in as a movement uh, so you see there's this difference between the regular practice of something and practicing something as part of a movement. The Reformation was a movement. You know, e- even though we do say we should always be reforming, the Reformation was not intended to go on forever. Uh, the hope was that whatever that thing we're focusing on, whatever it is we're reacting to, uh, would soon be dealt with. And we would go on to live in a natural way that's pleasing to the Lord, and the movement then fades into the background. But, but what I'm hearing is that uh, the house church movement is, is still very much a movement. It's still very much a reaction. And they have no intention of, it, uh, of, of slowing down. They're not attempting to assert a corrective to the church that's out there. They're instead trying to, to bring something... To be in, the corrective. To, to be itself the corrective, yes. yeah. They're not trying to reform from within. They're beginning anew. Okay. Although, to them, they're not beginning anew. They're simply going back to the, what they believe is the New Testament model. Yeah. So I think, again, to, just to highlight that they're, they're seeking to be biblical, even if we might, obviously, later have some critiques about it. Yeah. That's, their, that's their desire. Well, let's take a step back for a second. Um, Time Magazine, in their uh, March 6th, of this year uh, issue had a whole thing on on this. Let me see if I have the title right here. It is um, it's called there, "There's No Pulpit Like Home." Was the title of the article, and this is uh, this is just the opening paragraph. This gives you an idea of what a house church is doing to give people a sense for what's going on. You know, we're talking a lot about what do they believe theologically, what do they believe from the scriptures, what, what do they actually do. Uh, describes it in this way. It says, On a Sunday at their modest gray ranch home in the Denver suburb of Inglewood, Tim and Janine Pines gather with four, other children, with four other Christians for an evening of fellowship, food, and faith. Janine's spicy rigatoni precedes a yogurt and wafer, yogurt and wafer confection by Ann Moore, none of the food violating the group's solemn commitment to Weight Watchers. 
Oh, well, we're hoping we'll get onto a commitment to something beyond Weight Watchers. Uh, the participants who have pooled resources for babysitting discuss a planned missionary trip, and they sing along with a CD by the Christian crossover group Sixpence None the Richer. One of the lyrics, presumably written in Jesus' voice, runs, I'm here, I'm closer than your breath, I've conquered even death. That leads to an earnest discussion of a friend's suicide which flows into an exercise in which each participant brings something to the table, a personal issue, a faith question, and the group offers talk and prayer. Its members read from the New Testament epistle of the Hebrews, they observe a mindful silence, and they share a hymn. So this is, this is a picture. This is what's going on in a typical house church. Now, maybe it's not your, if you're listening to this, and you go, well, that's not what we do. Um, this is how Time Magazine chose to represent uh, the house church movement, uh, which brings us to this question: Is this a new thing? Is the house church movement a new thing, or has this been going on for a long time? Well, I mean, Peter's probably got a whole bunch he wants to say, but the certainly in China since communism, it's been going on in modern times by necessity. Uh, at times when. Um, Biblical faith has waned. Uh, there have probably been in places congregations only so large that they would fit in homes. And so this model um, probably has, it certainly uh, has been used through time, but in terms of its uh, as a movement, that's a bit more modern. I would say they used the China uh, illustration once. I'm not sure I buy the analogy simply for the reason that the church in China is in a house but or they will die. Um, <laughs> it's not a choice, you're saying. It's not a choice. It's not a yeah. conviction. Yeah, and I think if you ask the church in China, could, could we come public and buy buildings and be institutionalized in some way? Yes, and, and they would say yes. And then outside of that, and this goes back to, your, to what you said initially about ecclesiology, what is true Christian worship? Can it be led by just whoever pleases? Can it be led whoever, by whoever the congregation think is, thinks is qualified? Are there um, specific guidelines that God's people have seen in the scriptures throughout history as to who can lead worship, who can baptize, who can give the sacraments, who has a right to open up the word? Can a female do it? You know, and a lot most most of the house church websites I went to, and again these are just websites. I understand that I haven't done any in depth, and they did list book resources on those websites, which I don't have time to read. But I've, I've got a list of books. I'll read it at the uh, at the end okay, for further study for folks. Good. Um, so I think the house church, as it is expressed, the movement as it is expressed today, has very little, if any, historical support outside of perhaps some. Uh, radical reformers Um, and I think that that needs to be emphasized because what they're saying and here's a direct quote from one of the websites it says um, this is from uh TheRealChurch.com. It says, for nearly 1,900 years, the church has been on a downward spiral with only patches of truth recovered. That's a really damning indictment of God's people throughout church history, and I think it is typical. Of, America, of a modern American response to things to look at church history and have that sort of comment on church history. We do it in our circles. It's not just 
with them, it's very easy for us to look back and go, oh, the church has been wrong for 1900 years, and not think about the theological and Christological implications of that statement. And, uh, of course, it, there's just problems with that in my mind. It, you, well, you're thinking of Christ's statement that, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against yeah. it. And my sheep a statement will, like that does go against that in some sense. Yeah, and my sheep will hear my voice and follow me. Well, you're saying, you're saying with the nature of the church, you're not talking about you know, dresses here, which, which are one thing, you know, clothes, something peripheral. You're saying the very nature of God's people has been misunderstood for 1,900 years. Yeah, that's, that's a strong statement. I, I wonder if that, if that website tends to, uh, tends to be some of the... If, I wonder if the some of the websites tend to be stronger in that sense because I know the the stuff that I read off the web was much milder than that much more we're trying to bring about a reformation we've been you know too long encumbered by no lipstick fundamentalism hmm. uh, you know we've we're tired of looking for a parking place at the megachurch you know we're even we're even you know, tired of the lattes served by the emergence. We we just want to get, we, we want to get somewhere which, as I think Matt said this earlier, that's simple. Yeah, I think fundamentally it's community focused. Yeah, yeah. I think fundamentally, the, the that statement there has to be said by them, even if it's not explicitly said, because you look through church history and it's not there. So I think even if the house church now this depends on if they see it as permanent or temporary. If they see it as a temporary transition. Uh, a reforming of what exists, that's one thing. And I would buy that. I mean, I mean, I would say, okay, you're right. Things need to be reformed. There are problems for sure. Yeah, the church is definitely ripe for reformation. Y- yes, yeah. but if you're saying this is the nature of God's people is that they need to meet in small groups at people's homes, and this is the correct way to do worship and to do church, then you are in that same sentence thing, saying that God's people have done it incorrectly for 1,900 years. Well, and let's, let's be a little bit careful because I think that it, some people may say that, but we all recognize um, that the Reformation didn't fully complete the work. There's been many things that have taken place since the Reformation that are significant insights. Sure, For example, sure. uh, where would we be as Reformed and Presbyterian people without Gerhardus Voss? Sure. You know, who didn't come out until the late 19th, mid to late 19th century, early 20th century, and brought a tremendous amount of insight uh, into things, changed the way that we preach. And yet that wasn't something that was as clear in the Reformation. It's a further thing. So we're not, don't hear us, if you're listening to this, saying that we don't think there's more work that could be done. No, definitely not. But there is more work that could be done. But what we're trying to answer is, is this the right way for that work that still needs to get done to be done? Well said, yes. Well, Matt, what can we appreciate about this movement? Well, I think that we've got to be passionate with them um, about community. That we, we... uh, too long, I think the church um, has just taken a pass on forming what we could really call a covenant community. People committed to each other, people who spend time together, people who together form a witness by the way that they love one another. The whole concept, the whole atmosphere that First John assumes, not just about individuals, but about a congregation is so absent in most churches, no matter what their size, that if somebody came in and they witnessed us for a month and they just watched would they see First John, we have to honestly, sadly say, no, they wouldn't. And so there's something that very much to be appreciated about a, a close group uh, that, that puts their own relationships and the quality of them very, very high. Well, it's much more of a... 
hospitality in the sense of New Testament hospitality. We think of hospitality, have somebody over for lunch. Uh, that's not how the New Testament saw hospitality. It was a much deeper, much more community-oriented uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. It was much more the way that they lived. Yes. Which is a little bit harder because we're more spread out. We don't, most of us don't walk to church. You know, we have some of that suburban sprawl problem. Yeah, we've, we've, we've lost the village. Right, right. And, and in one sense, the community is a lot easier in those times, which means we ought to work the harder at it. We ought to form our churches in such a way that there's midweek meetings that, in a way, can help form that community, um, even in an ordinary means church, that we're intentional enough about it that we, we do that, that our pastors, that our elders, well, they fit the qualifications, which says that you've got to be hospitable. Uh, and we give that a pass now. We, we, would we, in most of our churches, you who are listening, think of your elders in your church. Would you judge them to be hospitable? And yet that's one of the qualifications. Why do we give that a pass? We give it a pass because nobody does it. Yeah. Because we're Americans and we close our garage doors and we go inside. And, um, and that's what they're screaming about, and they should be. Yeah. They should be. Yeah. We should all hear that and go, yeah, you're right. We need to fix this. Yeah. Now, now, the flip side of that, compared with what Peter is finding on these websites, is that the you've got to ask if if they are so anti-authority, what do they do with those passages in the Bible that talk about the role of elders and deacons? You know, they've they've got to, and I, I don't have an I, an answer for that. Maybe Peter Peter's flipping through his paper. <laughs> I want to just talking about some of the things we can appreciate about this movement. I go back to Matt this time. Uh, this church we were in tried to do this meta-church model, right. and we met on our, our particular weekday group, actually met on Sunday evening in a house, and there were some wonderful, wonderful things that happened there. You know, praying was so much more personal. I mean, you were praying for this guy sitting right next to you. Uh, prayers were very direct for the, for the needs that people really had. Uh, right there, somebody was out of a job. I remember in this particular group I was in, everybody at one point or another was out of a job. Hmm. And that group bound together. They were constantly providing meals for someone in the group. Uh, they were constantly writing checks to help people out with, with getting food and with getting the necessities of life. Um, they were, it, was, it was a great place where you could bring in an, a non-believing friend and it wasn't this, you're bringing them into the church, and they're sort of scared of the big church right, model. Right, yeah. They felt, okay, this is, they could see the first John thing that you were talking about, Matt. They could come in and see that we actually loved each other. Right. And somebody who saw that said, well, I want to go to your church. It wasn't as if that was the end. You know, they said, well, can I come to church with you? They wanted to know more about why we believed what we believed and uh, and did what we did here in these in these home church meetings. So we certainly need to get back to meeting as Christians in houses. We need to get back to koinonia, fellowship, not socializing, where you're talking about the latest episode of Lost. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> um, you, you, we need to get back to fellowship, where we're getting together, and what are we talking about? We're talking about Christ and what he's done in our life. And we're talking about what God is teaching us in the Word, and we're spurring one another on to love and good deeds. We need to get back to that. And I think that is something we can really appreciate about those in the house church movement, is that they want that same thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and by and large, 
even in the strand of, of the denomination and the Reformed Presbyterian tradition that we're in, what you're hearing here is not always echoed by people. Some people just say, well, having small groups in homes, that's just sort of, that's a, you know, if you can do it, great, but if you can't, you know, it's not the essence of the church. But I, I think that's mistaken. I think the house church has understood some, something fundamentally that the big church has misunderstood, and that's that people grow through the preached word applied many times through talking and discussing and saying, well, how, how would you put that together in your life? Or how is this a struggle for you? And, and it's in that midst of meditating together on the word as it's been preached to them um, that the spirit also works. And the iron sharpens iron. That you yeah. know, All those verses in Proverbs that talk about uh, that relational thing that needs to take place. Now, there's a couple, we should say there's a couple ways you can do that. Some churches get very formal in the way they create small groups, and you come in, you're assigned to a small group, you're usually assigned an elder. You know, our church is doing it a little bit different. Uh, we're, we're trying to bend the rules a little bit. We're trying to get people to create small groups on their own. Uh, we're trying to encourage people to show hospitality regularly and continually having people over to their house without a firm structure uh, because we believe that that will, uh, that will ultimately work out well, that that will create in people the desire rather than forcing people into a mold. Now, that may be different in your church. It may be your church is so big, you just need that structure to keep it working. Uh, our size, we have about 100, 130 worshiping with us. That works, and uh, it's not the best it could be. We're, we're still working on that. Um, I think we're going to be working on that for a while because we're always going to have Christians who are coming out of modern evangelicalism that has become bought into some of the lies about independency, Mm -hmm. that I can be a Christian on my own. And one thing that I do like about the house church movement is that they're saying, I'm not content to sit at home and watch D. James Kennedy Mm -hmm. and that be my church. I need to get together with other Christians. And that is to be appreciated, yeah, very much so. I think, too, that it, um, as we think about smaller groups coming together, I'm just struck, again, how little in our churches we see Titus 2 happening. Why is it that people don't get together in homes? Well, most of the time, if you actually get the ladies to be honest, it's because they feel really stressed having people in their house. Well, why did that happen? We got Our son got here shaking his head. Yeah, all of our wives have experienced that. How do you get past that? Well, gee, if you had some older woman who've done it three, four, five thousand times, come alongside a younger woman and show her how to do it to mm. where it's not stressful. Yeah. Boy, wouldn't she be freed up just to have people in her house because she knows how to do it? She knows how to order her week in such a way that she and her children together, they're able to clean the house and it's not this big stressful thing on Saturday. The husband, wow, maybe he'd even pitch in and help, you know, cut vegetables or something. And so that when people come over, it's not a big deal, and you can focus on the people instead of the tasks, and, and maybe that's another piece we're missing. Yeah, well, that, that's, I think that's something that we can even address in a future podcast, because I think the, the um, effect of materialism in our mindset and in, our, in pulling us away from an ordinary means of grace is very big in our culture. Hmm. We want stuff. We want... Uh, you know, we want the latest and greatest exciting thing, and that's where our materialistic culture is tending us. Whereas I think an ordinary means of worship will actually lead us, as I'm, I'm, I may sound like a monk here, but it, it's actually going to lead us to have less stuff in our homes. Hmm. 
our houses will not be as crowded because we realize we don't need all those things. We need a simpler lifestyle. We need All we need is Christ. And wouldn't that kind of Christology, that if we really believe all we need is the gospel, would that have an effect on how much stuff is in our home and therefore how hard it is to clean our home and therefore how often we show hospitality? Just some thoughts. Take them. No, that's a great. That's a great thought because I, I think that um, there was a. a uh, I in the uh, listeners wouldn't know this, but in the past I've driven motorcycles, and when my uh, well, my wife conceived our first child, I gave up the motorcycle. And in recent years, I've uh, been rethinking that a little bit, and my wife's actually semi willing to have me drive a motorcycle. Perhaps and, a Vespa. Um, perhaps a Vespa, and uh, so I actually saw one for sale right across from our church building last year, and um, considered getting it. And then pondered, could I actually take on another maintenance task and maintain the other biblical priorities I already had? And I said, no. I couldn't. And I think that's what Sean's trying to say, is that the more stuff we have, the more it takes to maintain it, and the less time it gives for people. Maybe you've heard people in the Word are the only things that will last forever. So our time ought to be with them. Yeah. Hebrews 10.24 let us consider how to stimulate one another on to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And I think that's something that the house church is doing. Mm. But now we have to ask the question, is what they're doing in opposition to the church that Jesus has established? Or is it complementary? Can it be complementary? Can house churches exist uh, where there are existing churches? Because we, we obviously understand in a situation where there is no existing church, you've got to have a church of some sort, and a house church might, you know, might as well be it. But can a house church exist where there are existing churches? Peter, you want to take that? Can or should? Is it moral? I is mean, Jesus I'm, pleased with a house church next to an institutional church? Depends on how bad the institutional church Assume is. Assume it's a biblical institutional church that any of us could live with. See, and I would say no to that. I would say no. And here, here's, here's the reason why. Well, there's, there's numerous reasons why. Um, I don't think the scriptures teach the house church model, first of all. Second of all, I don't think God's people have taught the house church model, which puts two things in the corner. Now, I do think the house church can be complementary, and clearly they... They do not take an opposition-type mentality as a general rule to the institutional church. I want to give that caveat there. They're not saying we're here to destroy the institutional church, but theology and leads to practice. And I think if you nail them down and you ask them, if you had your choice, would it be all institutional or all house church? They would say, well, we would do away with the institutional church. They do see the institutionalized established church as not good. Um, the structure is not good. I'm not talking about the people and not saying the people aren't saved. They don't say those types of things. They're very gracious in that regard. But they do see the institutional church as a deviation from the biblical model down, down throughout the centuries uh, and as it in need of, even if, even if they don't express that explicitly, the fact that they have chosen to express the nature of the church in the way they have by their very practice 
they are saying this over here is not the best way, even if they wouldn't necessarily label as evil. They're saying this is not the best way. The best way is what we're doing right here, or they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't think it was the best way. So, so right. they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't think it was biblical. So how do they explain biblically what they are doing? Where do they go? Well, I think they probably go to Acts chapter 2. And what you see in Acts chapter 2 is a smaller group meeting in a home. Very simply, you don't even have a, even something we would call a form of worship necessarily. You have a general pattern uh, that they were there all together in one place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And, um, you know, they had... Now, what's interesting is just before this, you get 3,000 added to the church. That's a big house. It, it is a big house. Well, you, you notice so, there, Acts two, you're reading Acts 2.42. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. You notice that that's in the temple. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Yeah. They so, that was, so you have to think of a, of a, of a way that, you know, 3,120 people could meet. Um, and although, and there's other places as well that, that you do have the sense there was a meeting in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And, you know, there are other passages that talk about in the nascent church that this was a way, but it wasn't, but it's not the only use. And here's the caveat. It's not the only use of the Greek word church. If you look at the uses of the Greek word church in the New Testament, you find that it's not only something that would describe something meet, met in someone's home, but you would find it as a church that would that would signify for a city, Ephesus. That's right. Okay? The, the, and church Ephesus, the, church, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth. And you also find Paul using the church in the broadest sense of, you know, whatever label you want to give it, universal church, the... the, the um, it might be the, the probably best to say just the visible church uh, of Jesus Christ, which would be the the sum of the visible of the congregations, whatever their sizes. And so, when the the New Testament clearly indicates just by the use of the word church more than simply just those that met in smaller groups in a person's home, um, and so I, you know how, how they wrestle with that, I'm not sure. Well, the, the Acts 2 passage is instructive because you, you go later down at verse, around verse 47 and you'll see that they are meeting from house to house. Right. But it's these people who are meeting in house churches during the week that then on the first day of the week gather, gather together in the temple and they worship together. So you have both. So it seems to me if the house church is going to use, if this movement is going to use Acts 2, they have to see themselves as connected to something bigger. They have to see all of the house churches as connected in a way that all of those house churches could meet together in something more formal, something, as we mentioned earlier, something that has elders and deacons. Well, and even something that could receive whatever form of how you would interpret this, if you're a Presbyterian, you'd interpret this, Acts 15, as the end of the First General Assembly. If you're a Baptist, it would be that this was apostolic teaching. But there would have to be a way that those house churches, all of them gathered together, could receive something authoritative. And I think what Peter's indicated is there's there's a real allergy to anything authoritative. And I'm sorry, that just doesn't strike me as biblical. No, because the the scripture is authoritative. But it is, and for that reason, elders. See, and it, it depends on how you conceive of elders. Before the the podcast started today, we were talking about this. You see, most people think of elders as representing the people. We elect them. 
They represent us. It's just like the representatives we have in Congress, right? Wrong. Scripturally, what the way that eldership is laid out in the scriptures is that God gifts and matures certain men to be elders in his church, and the people look at the qualifications laid out in Titus and Timothy, and they go, that man's an elder. He acts like one. He lives like one. Because of what God has been because doing. Because of what God has been doing. And so God's in the business of raising up elders, and the congregation simply says, wow, he already is one. Let's just vote on it and make it official. Yes, Christ, represent yourself to us through this man. So it's not him representing us. It's him representing Christ to us, and Christ certainly has authority over us. So this is a definite pitfall of the home church movement, the house church movement, is this lack of authority. I'm, I'm looking right here at the Time article, and uh, there's a paragraph that reads this way. It says, the meeting could be a sidebar gathering of almost any church in the country, except for a ceramic vessel of red wine on the dinner table offered in communion. Because the dinner, it turns out, is no mere Bible study, 12-step meeting, or other pendant to Sunday service at a Denver megachurch, it is the service. There is no pastor, no choir, no sermon, just six believers and Jesus among them. Now, that's interesting, and that's very telling, because you notice that they have the communion, but they don't have the pastor, and they don't have the sermon. So we're dividing up the ordinary means of grace. We're rejecting maybe something that they've seen in terms of bad preaching. Mm -hmm. And by rejecting that, they've thrown the ordinary means of grace baby out with the bathwater. And that's, that's a potential pitfall. And I think that, that, I don't know about the initial paragraph by time, but I think that paragraph by time is very representative of the way they see themselves. I do not, the home church, here, here's some quotes about leadership. Um, do house churches have any form of leadership? This is frequently asked questions. Yes, they do. The most common form of leadership in the house church is servant leadership, whatever that means. This is the example that Jesus gave in the Gospels. If someone wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then he, she should be the servant of all. Okay, well, we can, we can live with that for the most part. I mean, that's fine. A servant leader is someone who is admired for their character, fruit, and walk with the Lord. To lead just means to go first. Now, here's the caveat. This person is someone who's gone first through different things, and their counsel is trustworthy and solid. The main difference with this type of leadership in comparison with traditional institutional church leadership is that this person's opinion doesn't carry any more positional weight than anyone else's within the group. Now, one of the things we, we teach here at Viewcrest is that when Sean stands up, that's that's that my pastor, Sean. When he stands up, it is as if the word, as if Christ himself is speaking. They would crush that completely. They, they feel like that's a slap at the priesthood of all believers. You cannot do that. That is impossible. But it's interesting to note that they, they saw uh, in that man who is their leader, they recognize those gifts that Matt just talked about. But he mm-hmm. can't speak authoritatively. That's the thing. He, can't, he, can't, he leads by example. He cannot turn around and say, you must... That is what you miss in this. He cannot stand up in the pulpit and say, this is God's word, obey it. Now, the people as some sort of amorphous group can do that. But for any one person to do that would put that person in a position superior to everyone else in their eyes. And that was what they, 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 uh, they yeah. have an allergy to. to just yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just two, two texts um, that, that just strike me as... Uh, Relevant. 
Uh, when we look at Ephesians 4 and we have this great passage about the unity of the body of Christ, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all that we're all called to. So we trust in Christ. We find out that God didn't make people the same. He didn't remake them the same by the Spirit in their new birth. Instead, he gifted them differently. He gave some to be apostles who spoke authoritatively. Some to be prophets who spoke authoritatively. Some to be evangelists who spoke the evangel authoritatively. And some to be pastors and teachers. So why would we have a string of people gifted, all speaking God's word in different ways, one of whom would not speak authoritatively in the way that they speak for God, in the way that, that people all through the scriptures did? Um, I think as well about, about Hebrews thirteen seventeen, uh, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't know how you get around that. I just can't. You can't. You can't. You can't um, but, but again, we've got to recognize that people may be coming from a really bad situation where it was abusive and there wasn't servant leaders yes. who were over them. And yeah. that's sad, and we should bemoan that. Men, men you can respect. And see, that's the thing, yes. is that these men that you put over yourself, that God is calling and you, you as a church recognize, are men of respectability, men you want to respect. Well, just above that in Hebrews 13, it talks about the character traits of that leader. Remember your leaders, this is, this is Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. There's something there too about authority. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so these, again, are people that you would want to respect uh, because Christ has worked in them and is working on the hearts of the people through them. How how do you do Matthew eighteen, church discipline, you know, going to my brother, if they have a pro, if, you know if there's a problem, my brother doesn't repent, going to the elders. How do you do that in the home church movement? I think the better question is, and I think I think they would say you do it best in the home church movement. That's what they would say. But, but there's no elders, from what I'm hearing. Well, here's the here, and here's the problem. Well, there's no office of elders. Again, let me, let me, I want to make sure I'm trying to be fair to the, what I've read. There's no office of elders. There are people who function as elders and who may be recognized as such. Um, I think the better question is taking comments like this. It is only when believers meet in the company of other believers, put aside their own agendas and ambitions, and open themselves to the Holy Spirit that they can properly hear the voice of their king, the living Christ, as he now sits at the right hand of the Father and rules his kingdom. There is a very amorphous sense in the reading that I get that the better question is, what do we discipline for in the house church movement? In other words, how is anyone supposed to determine what is exactly true? Because the only way truth is worked out, listen, listen to this also. They're talking about the doctrine of of the house church. It says, we get this doctrine not so much from the text of the early Anabaptist and Baptist confessions. We get it from the manner that those confessions were made. Believers huddled together and decided whether to give in to the powers that oppressed them or to carry on and take the consequences of continuing their struggle against the state church and its minions. And it talks, and, and you get that frequently where this is all about us getting together and figuring out what is true and where the Holy Spirit's leading us to. And it is it is cut off from any outside authority. These are Baptistic churches. They are anonymous and they're autonomous, excuse me, in their belief. There's not another when we gather, 
We have the right to determine what we want, and no one outside of that can tell us. So the better question to me with Matthew 18 is how do you determine what to discipline someone for? Everyone gets together and just says, well, you know what, let's have a vote. Let's decide. And that's a little simplistic understand. But really, you're not accepting what the pe- God's people have taught from the past. So you're, you're in many ways reinventing the wheel. And, and you're stuck with a solo scripture interpretation. You're stuck with a, a small group of Christians deciding what they think the scriptures say outside of what God's people have said. And I think that lends itself to a bad hermeneutic. Well, certainly, certainly, because you're, you're separating yourself uh, too much from this church that Matthew sixteen eighteen, in that context of church discipline, uh, just prior to it, Jesus says to Peter, he says, uh, upon this rock, and the, by rock it's Peter's confession that you are, you are the Lord, you are the Christ. He says, upon this rock, so upon Christ himself, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is Jesus' promise. And what some in this house church movement seem to be doing is standing up against the very church that Jesus has established. Now, that is not to say that there are not churches in need of reformation. There are not, that's not to say that there are not churches that have gone liberal to an extreme that you have to ask, is their lampstand still lit? But I, I think of this, I, I got this comment on a blog post that I did uh, just a month and a half or so ago, and it was written by Anonymous. And Anonymous said this was a blog post on the house church movement. He said, I grew up in an institutional church where a foundation was laid and where I learned basic principles and doctrines of Christ. Okay, good there. But there came a day when I heard the Holy Spirit say, let go on to perfection And do not continue to go over the doctrines of baptism, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead. Once I heard someone ask, where do you go when you come out of the institutional church? The answer is, we go to him. For 30 years, he writes, I have, or she, I have walked outside the IC, the institutional church. I found my experience much like homeschooling. I have had very rich times of fellowship and body ministry. I have seen God's word confirmed in my life by others, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I have experienced a rebuke when needed as God led others to speak into my life. I thank him for his life wherever I can find it. But I must testify that it has been when I have walked alone with him that I have learned what it means to mature in Christ. Oh... Oh, this poor, this poor gal, guy, gal, whoever this is that wrote this, they're anonymous. Um, I feel for them because they have left the realm of scriptural authority for, as you said, Peter, an amorphous situation depending on an experience of the Spirit's guiding rather than depending, and this is why we're here, depending on the ordinary means of grace. You might remember in that, the second podcast that we did, I quoted John Piper. Uh, he was doing a reflection on Martin Luther. And one of the things that Luther was uh, passionate about was the way that the Spirit works is through an external word. Why 
would the Spirit of God take all the time and energy that it took to have these 66 books written over 1,500 more than that years? All these continents, all these authors, why all this energy put forth? Why all the energy to preserve the scriptures the way that they are so we have an authoritative word from God if the Spirit's intention was to speak apart from that word? Which is essentially what they're saying. It's not a speaking through the word, but speaking apart from the word. I definitely got that impression. I'm not sure that's the impression the house church wants to give. But the impression I got was I did not get the impression, go study God's word thoroughly and you will come to the same conclusion we came to. If you're having hungering for something, if you're looking for a different experience, if if you've had problems, pray about it. It wasn't study. It was always pray and see where the Holy Spirit leads you. Now, I'm not against praying, but I am saying... You're, you're against praying apart from, from the, the Word of God. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then another thing that plays into this, and this is, again, their ana- some heritage they have there, is, um, is the remnant idea. A lot of them see themselves, both in eschatology and in other areas, as a remnant. The remnant of the true Christians, the true church. Not that the other people aren't Christians, but the true, pure church here on earth the remnant idea is really prevalent in some of the writing there, and for whatever reason. Well, I think that brings us uh, to the end of the time we have here. I want to, as we close, uh, mention just a few books that I found on this that you may want to look into if you want to learn more about the House Church uh, movement. Uh, the first book is a book called House Church and Networks, A Church for a New Generation. And uh, this book is by Larry Creeder, K-R-E-I-D-E-R, uh, with a forward by Peter Wagner, which is interesting because he's the sort of the founder of the church growth movement uh, within the institutional church, as the uh, home, uh, home church refers to them. Uh, another book is Getting Started, a Practical Guide to House Church Planting. Uh, this is by Felicity Dale. Uh, third book is Houses That Change the World by uh, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Simpson. And then a a fourth book I found, and this is actually in a series of books called Radical Church Reform. Uh, It's called So You Want to Start a House Church, and that's by Frank Viola. Now, I don't know if I just gave everybody uh, what they need to go home and start a house church. I, I hope you understand that what we see as potential pitfalls in the house church movement are really that, very potential pitfalls, that we need to see the ordinary means of grace We need to see ordinary means of grace churches, and that cannot happen completely within a disconnected, reactionary environment, which appears to be what many of these house churches that we're looking at uh, tend towards. Uh, So any other uh, comments, guys, as we close out? Well, maybe sometime when we come back in the sacraments, we can re-bring up the house church movement as we think about the sacraments as an ordinary means of grace, because I think that's an area we haven't talked about. But can the sacraments be done in a, a house church? I mean, obviously, physically they can be done, but is Christ pleased with them? And that's a question we need to answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that brings us uh, to the end. So as we close, may the Lord bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means of grace. Thank you.